Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis And it's beautiful outside, the sun is shining And this is going to be fantastic We have the author of Canary in the Coal Mine here, Charles Salzburg. And he created a really interesting character, people. Peter Fortunato, a New York City PI who suffers from, a lot of people suffer from this anger management, issues that insomnia takes up one day with a bad, wakes up one day with a bad taste in his mouth. That's when you know you're going to have a big problem here. When he arrives at his office, a desk in back of a friend's real estate office, He's hired by a beautiful woman to find her husband, dead or alive. Oh, she's really cool. So, Charles is here, and good morning, and I am so excited because I put your review on uh, just on Just Reviews this morning, last night, actually, and a couple of people read it right away and said it's fantastic. So that's good. Oh, great. Thank you, Fran. As yeah, always, I'll put it on Amazon later because I want to be number one. What can I say? <laughs> So mm-hmm. how are you doing? And give us a summary of this book slightly. Oh, okay. Those are the hard, I'm doing fine, Fran, and I love being on your show. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's probably the hardest thing for a writer to do is, is, is summarize. Mm-hmm. But in any case, um, Pete Fortunato, as you said, um, is a New York City PI um, mm-hmm. who is broke all the time because he's kind of marginal. Um, he His mm-hmm. office is desk in a friend's real estate office. He can't even afford his own office. And um, he he does have anger management problems and insomnia, which doesn't, doesn't help. And mm-hmm. uh, he's got kind of a mysterious past. Um, he's, mm-hmm. uh, he, he was a, a law enforcement uh, person upstate New York and left um, after a while under sort of mysterious circumstances, which I don't address in, in the book because I didn't think it was really necessary now. Uh, anyway, and, and as you mentioned, uh, a beautiful uh, woman walks into his office and wants him, uh, wants to hire him to find her husband. And the unique thing, as you pointed out, it wasn't uh, find him alive, but find him dead or alive which right away is a key to, um, to Fortunato, that there's, there's something more to this than, than she's talking about because people don't um, usually come and ask you to find someone who might be dead. Uh, and so the rest of the book is, um, uh, well, he, he does uh, pretty early on find the answer to uh, her question uh, about finding her husband dead or alive and this leads him into a um, sort of an adventure to um, recover some money that the husband stole um, mm. so that uh, sort of saved his life because the Albanian mob is, is involved in this, in this case. 
So, uh, so that's pretty much it. It's, it's the, and, and his search takes him down to Texas and to New Orleans and then back to New York. Well, I'll tell you something. He's interesting, I'll tell you that. He's not like Henry Swan. He, re- no, he reminds me. He's tougher, and he reminds me of the old detectives that my mom used to watch on television, Mannix, Jim Rockford, and, mm-hmm. and all of those. Yeah, he does. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, you know, you, you, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, I have uh, five Henry Swan books. And uh, I wanted to create a character that was very different from Swan. Swan would avoid a fight whenever possible, whereas Fortunato kind of looks for fights because of this this deep-seated anger. So, um, and he is um, a throwback in in my mind, and I uh, to to like the Mickey Spillane characters and and people like those detectives that you're talking about who were much more people of action. Um, And and that was my goal going into this book is to create a character that was very different from from Swan. Oh, you did. Let me tell you. Now, I realized when you created, you know, you ever get up, there are times you get up with a bad taste in your mouth and you just have a really sick feeling. Mm-hmm. So that first scene, how did you create it? Because I knew right away something was not right. And then he well, that- meets her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, that's exactly what, I mean, your reaction is exactly what I was looking for, is I wanted the reader to know right away that, that something's wrong. Something's going to go wrong or something is wrong. And this is his own sort of alarm system that when he wakes up with that bad taste in his mouth, he knows something's wrong, either for someone else close to him or him. And that's mm. exactly what, and actually that line came to me be, before I had any idea uh, mm-hmm. of who said it or um, what it meant. Uh, it was the first thing that, that keyed off, oh, this is going to be the first line of a new novel. You know what I got a kick out of, too? I'm looking at it because the book's in front of me because there's a lot of people that want to read it and they're going to just have to go get it themselves too bad. Um, oh, the chapter titles. Who's Been Sleeping in My Bed? And the the first one is, is sort of says it all. Where is it? It's right here. Um, yeah, this could be the start of something big. It's like each chapter just sort of lets you know, watch out, something's going to happen. I like the one that says it's all in the wrist. Hmm. That's really interesting. So, from the start, Lila Alston, why do we get a feeling that she's not what she seems? And the fact that she doesn't want to, she doesn't really care about her husband being alive or dead says a whole lot about her. Not very nice. <laughs> it does, and, and also she's she's sarcastic, and she's um, yeah. she's not your you know sort of shrinking violet woman. She she um, mm-hmm. says what she means, and sometimes says what she mm-hmm. doesn't mean. And so I wanted <laughs> her to be a very complicated character as as well, and not uh, and not fall into that trap of creating stereotypes. Um, you know, usually people who come for help like that are distraught and, uh, you know, upset. And uh, she's not. She's very cool, calm, and collected, and which right away sets off alarms, uh, I hope, in the reader, but, but certainly in uh, Fortunato. Well, I knew right away, but I like her, though. Sorry. She's as <laughs> evil as they get, but you know what? She says what she wants to say and does what she wants. That's the kind of person I like to be. She's one of these people who has who has an agenda, and we all know people like that. Yeah. You yeah. know, they're 
they, they know what they want and they want to try to um, manipulate people and that's who she is. Well, I know people like that. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> so how does he go about finding Donald and how does this set off a chain of dangerous events? And when he does find him, how does he deal with the police? <laughs> well, you know, I'm not giving too much away. I mean, I, no. I hate spoil, but but you really find out within the first two chapters what what happened is what he what he decides to do is um, he has to find all all investigators like to do this. They'll find out about the life of the person they're looking for, and um, he he finds very quickly that um, this husband was having an affair with someone. And so he goes to, um, he finds out who it is and approaches her and interviews her. And that leads uh, to, to another uh, important fact in the, for him, and that is that the woman who hired him also has a boyfriend. So the, the husband had a girlfriend and the wife had a boyfriend, and mm-hmm. this ultimately leads him to... Um, the, the apartment of the boyfriend of his yeah. client, and that's where he finds um, dead in the bed, but fully closed. Clothes. He finds um, her husband, and so essentially he's he's solved the case. He's he's done what he's hired for, but it doesn't turn out that way. And uh, the big event that sort of clues you in to uh, the fact that it's, this is not the end of rather the beginning is that the, the check that she gives him to pay for, for his services bounces. So he's really got nothing uh, in, compens- in terms of compensation for the work he's done. And that, that kind of opens up this, uh, the, the rest of the book uh, and why he stays involved in the case. No, I felt bad because this apartment belongs to Travis, right? Mm-hmm, and, yes. And yeah, yeah. he So, and why does he want to hire him? Now that was really a twist. Let me tell you. Right. Well, I, again, I don't want to give away too much of the no. plot. I mean, you've read it, so you're kind of aware of it. But in any case, he, the the, the boyfriend's name is Travis, and he's a an actor. But really, he's what he is, is, is a lot of actors in New York. He's a bartender. You know, that's, that's what he does. And he lives in, um, in Hell's Kitchen. He has a small apartment. And so um, once, once Fortunato um, delves a little deeper in this, he finds that the husband, the dead husband, may have been involved in some financial shenanigans that then involved the um, Albanian mob. And yeah. the, the Albanian mob is, is interesting because they are so violent and so tough to deal with that the mafia will, will not deal with the Albanian mob. They, they're just too crazy. And so that kind of raises the level of danger that um, Fortunato finds himself in because... Um, he has to retrieve or find something that the uh, Albanian mob wants. And so his life depends um, not on solving a case anymore. He doesn't really care who killed um, the, the husband, 
but he does care very much about his own life, and his life is in danger unless he he gives back what the Albanians believe is theirs. So that pretty much um, sets the whole book off in, in a direction. Was this based on somebody else? I mean, I've dealt with Albanian yeah. people. Yeah, uh, they, they no. come, yeah. It's it's amazing because all the people in my building are great. The super is Albanian. I love him. But I know in the building that I used to live in, you had to be really careful in what you said and what you did. So does he be modeled after anyone, this particular guy? Um, he wasn't, no. Uh, so, so the only book I, well, there are two books of mine that I that I modeled um, after, and, and you've read both of them. Devil in the Hole was modeled mm-hmm. after a real and Second Story Man was um, inspired by two real-life uh, um, burglars, master burglars. But in this case, in this book, uh, no, I, I just, everything was totally made up. I mean, I did research on the Albanian mob, obviously, yeah. uh, because I wanted to know how they worked and the, the structure. Uh, and it's kind of important to the book. But otherwise, uh, Fortunato is a complete figment of my imagination, as are all the other characters. I mean, growing up in, in New York City, meaning like in my early 20s, I knew plenty of actors who, who worked as um, bartenders or waitresses or, or something like that. But, um, no, it was all, it's all totally out of my imagination. That's pretty good imagination because you got it right. Yeah. That's for sure. You definitely got it I right. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but before I forget, is this you're bringing this guy back, right? Again? Um, I don't know. I, I I never write any book with the notion that it's going to be part of a series. Um, mm. If someone if someone says, oh, I mean, I've for instance, I'm I have finished already uh, a novel that my agent is. Um, sending around now, which is kind of a continuation of Second Story Man, and it's called Man on the Run, and it picks up Francis Hoyt after um, Second Story Man ends. It's it's what happens to him after. But then I started another book that I'm about, I don't know, maybe a quarter through, and I don't even have a title for it, but the idea behind this is the is the main character, who's a journalist, has um, the he has a touch of ESP, and so, but no one knows it except one person. He's never, he's never um, publicized the fact that he can see things and uh, uh, that he has, you know, this this ability, this other sense. And so, and the reason I did that is because I've always been fascinated by ESP and people who say they can, you know, see mm-hmm. the past, the future, and I wanted to explore that. Um, uh, in a novel with a character. So if I if I did do a sequel to Fortunato, and he's interesting enough to me that I that I would do it, it, it probably wouldn't be for a little bit a little while. I could tell you about ASP. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I'm interviewing next Tuesday. This is huge, people. Janie and Krantz, Amanda Quick, when she dreams. And it's based on ESP and lucid dreams. And you can no. actually put, oh, yeah, she's into that. And, oh, it's like I couldn't put the book down. It was like, you know, eye strain right away. It was fantastic because she has actual 
um, dreams, dream encounters, and what happens when you have a lucid dream, especially when it turns into a nightmare. And when I was in college, there was someone that came into one of my classes and tested all of us and said that I, I saw, I'm very perceptive. I don't think I'd be as free, but I could tell you whether I like somebody or not right away. It's scary. So how to, how to tell us about Sergio. Why does he hire Pete, and how does he manage to not get killed? How does Pete manage not to get killed? or, or um, Anybody. How anybody. does Pete manage well, not to get killed? It's an interesting thing. I, I, you've read enough of my work to know that I really don't write murder mysteries, and I don't really have mm-hmm. killing my books. I mean, Devil in the Hole, the, the mass murder that takes place, takes place before the book begins, and there are no more murders in that book. Swan, other than the first one, mm-hmm. there aren't murders. It's, it's all about other crimes. And Second Story Man, there, there are no murders. So, um, I, and that's why, in a sense, I wanted to choose that this project was also, look, I'm going to try mm-hmm. to, to write a murder mystery, but it's going to be a little different. And, um, and that's mm-hmm. what I, I hope I've succeeded in doing that is there is, you know, there is always hanging over the reader who killed this guy. Um, and mm-hmm. so, um, but, and you do find out kind of at the end but it's not the, the object of the book to find out who killed him. The object of the book is, is kind of, as you alluded to, is staying alive. Um, that's what he's trying to do. And the other thing is that Fortunato is someone who um, not only sometimes um, initiates violence, but he's not mm-hmm. afraid of violence. And it's funny because that, that part of it is inspired by someone. Uh, I have a a student who is a um, retired cancer surgeon, and he actually wrote a mm-hmm. really good memoir. Um, and he's also a poet, and he's also a memoirist. And as a kid, he was a really t- grew up in Brooklyn, Jewish, went to um, yeshiva. But he was, he, I, I'm not going to say violent, but he never ran from a fight. He was this little kid, mm-hmm. but he was, he was pugnacious, and he was... Um, uh, you know, ready to use to fight back whenever he needed to, um, to protect his younger brother sometimes, or someone uh, went after him. And part of that was that his mother was very violent toward him, and so mm. he was um, he he had to defend himself uh, eventually. And and I think that's probably what made him a really good cancer uh, doctor. Right? He was the head of um, oncology departments and in. in in, in uh, hospitals and uh, around the city, and, and I think in Washington and, and uh, Boston too. But I really was interested in that pugnacious kind of person who mm. stands out and is never afraid of a fight. And the thing with people like that, oh, and, and I think it's true of, of um, Fortunato, is they're always prepared for a fight. You know, someone like me, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not people to be violent with me, and I don't, I don't expect that I will have to um, fight back. Um, people like that do, and so they're always ready for it. And so when you say, is he, you know, uh, about being killed, if he, is he afraid of it or, or concerned about it, he, yeah. he's always ready for it um, because of who he is. 
Well, well, he's ready for that confrontation. You know something? When you go, I grew up in the South Bronx, and then you know all about just, the confrontations. Yeah, I had to learn the hard way. And when I started to teach, I was given the sixth grade class from you know where. It was stacked. It was a stacked deck. They made sure that I was going to be tortured because they gave me every discipline problem in the whole building that ever walked through the school. And it took me about a month. And then I said, you know, I'm in charge, and I could torture your life, and I'm going to do exactly that. I made them miserable for a while. My punish lessons were well-known and very famous. And after that, for 36 years, I never had to do anything, never had to raise my voice or anything. They didn't want to start with me. They didn't want to find out. So you, sometimes you have to, you know, go out of your comfort zone, too. So exactly. what ha- what happens when he can't find – I like Travis. What happens when he can't find Travis – and how does technology come into play? Poor Travis. Uh, well, well, Travis is um, is kind of a pathetic character. Yeah. And um, he he because uh, I don't want to give too much away because no, you can't. You got to read about him. Between right between the the man who was murdered and, and Travis and the um, the wife. But um, ultimately what happens is that um, Travis is, is the one who's in danger as well. And so um, even though he's, it's not his goal, uh, Fortunato has to kind of take Travis under his wing. Um, but first he has to find him because he has disappeared. Uh, he knows there's a, there was a body in, in, found in his apartment in, in, in his bed. Um, and so he takes off. So um, part of it, part of the book is um, Fortunato looking for Travis because he needs he needs Travis to help him find what the Albanians are looking for. And Travis is is in danger from not only the cops because obviously they are they suspect he's the one who murdered the uh, the man but also from the Albanian mob who thinks that he has what they're looking for. So it's, it's kind of a, uh, it, it's a little bit, it sounds complicated, but it's really not. Um, but there are all these interactions between all these people. Well, all this time, Lila doesn't really care about too much of anything, does she? She got yeah, what she yeah. wanted. She you know, and it's funny, friend, because talking about this is not easy not because I don't want to, but, but writers must yeah. tell you this too. I, I finished this book two years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and and I've gone on to other stuff um, after that. And sometimes the the reader like you will re- will know and remember much better what's in the book than the writer will. <laughs> we we've moved on. So uh, so I remember the basic plots and and what happens and all that and and who's mm-hmm. who. But it's sometimes not so easy. You're probably a lot better finding and asking questions about details than I am. I know. I'm guilty of that. I know. And my, I, there's a reason, but I will tell that when I announce who, when the, what shows are coming up. There's a reason, and there's a person to blame for that. <laughs> I'll tell you that, a good person. Um, sometimes you don't realize that you catch something that nobody else does which is something that I know I do. 
And there's, right. there's a there's, yeah, there's a reason for that, and I'm really proud of myself that I could do that. So you have that created this conversation. This was hilarious, sort of, with poor Travis, and he has like sounds like he's in La La Land. He can't figure out where the heck he is. So they hook up, and how did you create the conversations that to convince him that Peter's his only hope to not get killed? Um, you know, the, I I don't I don't think about those things. The way I, the way I write <laughs> is, I sit down at the computer and start to write, and so I imagine um, I, I imagine I know what the situation is between the two people, whoever the two people or three people are, mm. and I create a conversation that that sounds right to me. It sounds realistic, um, and I think a lot of that comes from. Um, my earlier career as a, a, a magazine journalist and as a nonfiction mm-hmm. book. But it also goes back to, to childhood, and, and that is I was a very kind of shy kid, and I was um, uh, a listener. Uh, I would sit at the dinner table and uh, or wherever it was and just listen to conversations. And, of course, mm-hmm. my, the adults love that because what do they want? They want, you know, seen and not heard. But all this yep. time... I was listening to people and probably, um, without even knowing it, picking up uh, cadences, speaking cadences, and conversations. And and I still do that. I mean, people who know me know I, I ask a ton of questions of people, friends or whatever, and um, I I observe uh, things and listen to conversations. So when it comes time to sitting down and writing, it, it's not even something that's uh, that's difficult for me. Uh, if you think about the situation and the relationship between the people, you probably can figure out the likelihood of what they would say to each other. Uh, and, but you have to know your characters. So with Swan, he's kind of um, sarcastic and, and uh, cynical. And so his conversations with Goldblatt, for instance, his, his friend, come pretty easily. Because once I know the characters, I can figure out what they would say to each other and how they would express themselves. See, I have a problem with that. That's why when I write something, I write it in the first person or I'll just write it or something. I have trouble with dialogue. And mm-hmm. I don't let people say anything. <laughs> that, 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 well, that, that's know, my problem. Yeah, I, I have trouble with dialogue, oh, whatever. Right. A lot of my students have it too. And, and there's an exercise that, that you can do, mm-hmm. and that is um, – Put yourself in a situation where you're listening to two people talk. Uh, maybe you're in a bus and you're sitting, you know, mm-hmm. in front of or behind a couple of people talking to each other. Don't take any notes. And then go home and try to recreate that conversation. Mm. You'll think that you can, but you usually can. And that's what writing dialogue is. And after a while, if you, instead of having the real people talking and you're trying to recreate it, you will you can recreate um fictional people talking uh and, and and so when students come in and say i can't write dialogue they think they can but but they can if they if they put their mind to it and so for instance people who and i have some students who are really good at this you know your mother's voice and your father's voice you may not know exactly where you may not remember the exact words that they've used in a conversation with you or someone else, but oh, yeah. you can recreate the way they talk and the, some of the words they use. 
And so uh, it's it's all about paying attention, I think, and and um, and recreation. Yeah, my father would say, "Do it Ruthie's way if you know what's good for you." Right, you and you quoted your father, and you know, uh, I'm sure it yeah. sounds real to me. It sounds like something a father would say. So people are better at it than they think. They're just kind of uh, they're daunted by uh, the idea of creating conversation that never really happened. You have to make it as if it did happen. No, my mother would just give me the look, the Ruthie look, and I would say whatever. (laughs) So how does Pete process information, and how does he think about how to handle this situation? Well, he's he's a person of action, and he has a very strong sense of um self-preservation but his his initial reaction to, to almost any anything is to be combative about it uh and that the other thing i didn't mention about him is he he's an ex-baseball player he played baseball in high school and in college and mm. was possibly on his way to a pro career but mm. he got injured during a, a, a you know a play in the field and so he, he had to give up his baseball career. But people who are who play sports are very competitive and they're very combative. Uh the best ones. I mean, think about someone like Pete Rose or, or you know, people like that. And so that's part of his nature is to um to be confrontational. And he he's been forced into taking um anger management classes. Mm. And so he he is equipped with, and I researched this this part obviously. He's equipped with certain um, things that he he should do if he feels himself losing his temper. There are you know there are techniques that he can use, and mm. he he tries to use them because he knows that it's not always good to be that combative and that uh, you know in your face. It, it sometimes is counterproductive. But he's in a in a constant battle with himself um, over these things, and uh, again, his insomnia doesn't help. You know, people who've had it, yeah, uh, we've all had it. I, I don't do not suffer from it, but we've all had nights where we're up all we just cannot fall asleep because our mind mm-hmm. is racing. Think about that. Mm-hmm. If you had that every night, uh, you'd be pretty pissed off. Uh, I think most of the time. Um, and so that, that's kind of a deadly comp- combination for him, that he's trying to control. Now, I understand. You know, when I have students that were difficult <laughs> and they didn't want to get me upset or anybody, I would tell them, before you do something wrong, take a step back, count to ten, and close your eyes. And then right. say to yourself, is it worth it to get her upset? Or is it worth the punishment, or am I going to just step back and we're going to straighten it out calmly? And they usually do listen, because mm-hmm. they didn't like what I was going to do after that. You it see, reminds had, me, Fred, yeah. it reminds, what, I once asked my mom, you know, a couple of years before she died, I said, did I have a temper as a kid? And she said, no, you were very even. I never knew what you were thinking. And I said, what about my brother? I had a younger brother. She said, oh, no. Oh. He, he would hold his breath. And if he did something and I'd say, you better stop or else, my mother said, you would stop. Your brother would say, or else what? 
he would be, you know, weighing the consequences of continuing doing what he was not supposed to do. Um, mm-hmm. So it's very much what, like you're saying is you're you're asking that you were asking those kids to consider the consequences because people like that who have temper usually don't. They don't stop and and consider the consequences. No, they don't. And well, when I think I it was only the once I had the really difficult class again, a five six class. Nobody wanted them, and I was absent for a whole hour. Seriously, wow. and I got a call from the yeah for an hour, one hour. I was sick. Principal called and he said, uh, "Where are you?" I go, "I don't feel good. I have a headache." Blah blah. blah. We're going to be somebody's going to be downstairs to come and get you in ten minutes. I said, "Why?" Because you're not going to believe what you're going to see when you're going to get here. I couldn't believe it either. The girls were in the hall crying. The substitute was locked in the closet, and the boys were doing whatever. And when I got done with them, they were sorry they ever did it. I said, thank you so much for not behaving. They nope, I couldn't be absent the rest of the year. They said there was no way that anyone could ever deal with them. I was like, but they're so perfect. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, you, 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 it's amazing. So who is Susan Love, and where does she fit in? Well, well, Susan is the um, is the uh, paramour or girlfriend of the missing husband, yeah. and 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 so she's kind of key because she leads him to um, Travis. But and again, I don't want to give anything away. She doesn't no. disappear um, after he confronts her. She she works in a, a fancy boutique on Madison Avenue. Um, yeah, nice. I know the, since I grew up on Madison Avenue. And um, she, so she plays a part in it, but the uh, the initial part is really just a, a way to find Travis, uh, to find Travis in, in, in hopes of finding the husband. And he does find the husband, ultimately, obviously. So you created the scenes with Pete and Travis. How did you decide where they were going to go and Pete's reaction? And Travis like seems like he's in a world of naivety. Um, well, I, years and years ago, I did a um, an article for the New York Times Arts and Leisure section uh, mm. about uh, a movie that a, uh, a director named Hal Hartley was shooting. And Hal Hartley was a uh, a, a low budget uh, independent filmmaker who came from Long Island. Um, I think he came from Massapequa. And so almost all his um, films were set in on Long Island. That's what he knew. But for this particular film, he was shooting in, in Texas. And so the Times sent me down to, to Texas to um, interview him. And the interesting thing about it was it was set, it, 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 the movie was set in Long Island, but he went to Texas to shoot it because it was cheaper for him to shoot it in Texas. And he found this little town um, not far outside of Houston called Booth, Texas, where the houses looked very much like they were built in the same style as many of the houses out on Long Island. So it was kind of ironic and, and almost absurd that he was shooting this film in Texas recreating Long Island, where he lived and where he shot every other film. And and I was always uh, kind of taken by this small town, Booth, Texas. And so when I, um, when I, a lot of 
we all know um, people who are uh, come to New York to act or to write or to paint or whatever. So I knew that Travis was not a New Yorker. And uh, so I thought, well, maybe he's, he's really a Texan. And, and because I knew a little about Booth, uh, it had been many years ago, I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set this. Uh, he, he goes back to, to Booth, Texas, where he's from. And so that's how um, Fortunato winds up traveling all the way to Texas uh, in, in looking for him. Well, before I forget, I don't want to forget, Thursday, Matthew Kloss will be here with Mousetrap. How would you like to create the perfect child that's brilliant using an enhanced mouse to help you? Seriously. On the 26th, uh, when she dreams, uh, Janie and Krantz, uh Amanda Quick. And on the 28th, one uh, a little too many, and we're going to start May off with somebody we all know and love, John Bentley, Hostile Intent. That's just some of May. Wait till you hear about June when Tess Gerenson ends the month on the 27th with Listen to Me. And there's a whole bunch more in between. And yes, Lee Matthew Goldberg is going to come on Vanish Me on the 24th of next month. So I'm going to be a busy person. So and on the 12th, as I said, there's a reason. Um, I have a reading master's. It's my second master's, and the professor that taught me everything is coming on May 12th. We're going to do another seminar on how to get people and children to understand what they read using the psychology and pedagogy of reading by Yui. Yes, I have the book and read it, for real. It was written in the 1800s, and he taught me how to look past what's on the page and understand what nobody else does, which is the meaning. So, Dr. Cavuto... You blame. He really taught me a lot. So how does Pete finally realize the truth as to who is behind the whole thing? And how do you know that there's more, that this mob is not done yet? Well, again, I don't want to give away. No, don't give end, it away. But, and, and I've said this before on your, your show, Fran, is that um, I, I'm one of those people who, who doesn't outline and doesn't plot. And so yeah. I, I got to the... Um, probably the, the last couple of chapters, and I realized I had to wrap it up. And so that particular ending, um, which came as a surprise to me, so I'm hoping it comes as a surprise to the to the reader, uh, just popped into my mind uh, and, and how to do it. Uh, but I'm one of those writers. Um, I'm not the only one. But my friend Reed... Coleman um, observed this. He said, you know, your endings are never fat. You never tie up all the mm, loose ends. Yeah. And um, people might think that's, oh, that's just sloppy. But that's, that is totally intentional. And the reason I do that is two reasons. One, first of all, life is not like that. You know, the, the only true ending is when you die. I mean, everything else is, you know, there, there are lots of possible endings. And the other thing is that um, when, when I finish a, a book with an ending like that, I become much more involved in, in the book itself because I start to think of, okay, what did happen? What, what would happen? So it involves the reader. I, I'm kind of forcing the reader, rather than mm. giving them the bad ending, I'm, I'm forcing them to think about it. It's, it's that old thing about the lady and the tiger. Uh, there's a short mm-hmm. story about that, you know, you just, and, and for me, 
I know it, it might frustrate people because people want endings and they want, you know, what, what happened. They want to be sure about stuff. But I just think that in most cases, um, because life isn't like that, I'd rather challenge the reader a little and, and say to the reader, okay, what do you think happened? What, you know, what, what's most likely? And so those are, it's not sloppiness at all. Um, and it's not a, oh, he, he created a, a mystery and doesn't know how to solve it. it it's not like that at all. That, that, that's very purposeful on my part. Yeah, I know, because you do leave us hanging. This is about greed, power, and money, but from the last final scenes, that's why I said it's almost as if this is not over yet. That's what it seems like. Yeah, and no, I, I could, you know, I, I do not plan a sequel, but if someone said to me, we like it, we'd like you to do another one, I could do it easily because I don't know everything about um Fortunato. There's more for me to find out about him. The, the, pro, the reason I stopped the Swan books after five is I thought, okay, I, I know him. I, 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 I would be rewriting the same book over and over again. Now, that doesn't mean that I won't go back to it someday. I might get an idea that you know puts Swan in another situation or another um, environment. But once I'm, I don't want it to get to the point where I'm bored by the character. Mm-hmm. And so once I know everything about the character, how he, he or she would react, and what, uh, it, it no longer interests me as much. On the other hand, there is plenty that I could um, delve into about Fortunato. For instance, his past. What was it, what was it like as a small-town deputy? Uh, and why did he leave that job? What did he do to um, to make it uh, that he had to leave? So, um, so, so I could write one. I just don't plan to. Well, I'd like to see what happened if he and Swan worked together. That might be interesting. Yeah, that's a good idea. I have to team up, you see. You know, well, we still have like a loose end with Lila too. We're not really sure what's going to happen with her. I mean, so you get an idea, we, right? You don't know what yeah. you don't do not know. Again, I don't want to give anything away. You're absolutely no. right. You don't know what's going to happen to Lila afterwards. You know, yeah, but, I know. But I don't think that was happily ever after, or you know, mm-hmm. some people would have a, an epilogue where they tell you what happens to every character. Yeah, These I know. Characters you didn't do that. That's right. These characters are kind of alive for me, and, and I hope they are for for the reader. And so I, it's, it, it, you know, it's like me saying, I know what's going to happen to you tomorrow, Fran. You don't even know what's going to happen to you tomorrow, so how could I know? I don't think I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good point. You know, it's funny because um, we were talking earlier about the book I'm on, working on now. That, this book really is, um, in mm-hmm. part, uh, sort of modeled after someone. Years and years ago, when I was still writing um, nonfiction books, and doing magazine articles, I was hired to um, to do a book with a woman who um, did have ESP, and she worked for the police in solving crimes, and she was evidently quite successful. Her name is Pam Coronado, and she had a TV show for a while too, and mm. she she could um, under the right circumstances she could um, imagine what happened in a case or where a body was or something mm. like that. 
told me the techniques of how she did it. Um, it and so that stayed with me um, for, for years because, of course, there's a certain amount of skepticism. You know, can people really tell the future or whatever? This character, as he says, he can't tell the future. He can't tell you what horse to, to bet on to Belmont, but he can see things in his head that have happened in the past to people. Mm. So, um, again, I think most writers are like this. We, we write about things that we don't understand and we mm. want to understand better. And so um, when I wrote Second Story Man, I wanted to to understand someone who breaks into other people's houses and apartments and steals things that aren't theirs. Um, and so, if there's if I'm any book that I write is probably something that um, I want to know more about. I want to understand people uh, who I write about better. Uh, and I think most writers are like that. Uh, you know, I'll never forget. Um, when I when I had this thing with my um, leg that resulted in nerve damage, I was having my having lunch mm-hmm. with my friend Patty Dan, who's a writer who wrote Mermaids, uh, and she's written a ton of books since then. She's a really good writer, and she, the first thing she said to me when I sat down for lunch with her um, was, "What did you learn from this experience?" And that's a mm-hmm. very right question because that's what writers are asking themselves all the time what did I learn from this what you know uh, is there something constructive I, I can get out of it and so uh, uh, most of the books maybe all of the books that I'm even Devil in a Hole which is about as you know Fran it's about a man it's based on a true case of a man mm-hmm. the entire family his three kids his wife his mother and the family dog, and disappeared. The reason I wrote that book was because I was trying to, and and he disappeared, giving himself about a three-week head start because he canceled the newspapers. He called the school and said the kids won't be Mm. in for a few months. So it it wasn't him, the question of him snapping and murdering everyone around him. This was a well-planned thing. And so... Mm. I wrote that book was to try to understand how someone relatively rational, no killing is rational to me, um, could could do something, could plan so meticulously. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- why would he do this? And so that's why I wrote that book, is to find out, to my satisfaction. And I think that every book that I, that I write, uh, every novel, has a bit of that in it. Uh, I, I'm exploring things that I want to know more about or people I want to know more about. Well, I have to tell you, I watch, these are my favorite programs, based on what you just said. There's one called Vanished, where every person that starts at the beginning vanished, and they have to see if they can find the person, and they usually don't with the cop, with the police. Uh, one that I watched last night that was so sad was Last Moments. And then there's Buried in the Backyard and Killer Relationships. And we watched one, mark, The Mark of a Serial Killer. They finally found that there were two sets of serial killers. It's interesting because it's great for helping to write novels, and they're real cases that really happen. That's even mm-hmm. scarier. Oh, I, I love them. They're on oxygen. So when we talked on the panel last time, we talked about the last line. 
So this novel leads me to think that the last line of this novel leaves us with an unusual ending that Pete says. Yes, uh, the last line, and I have to look because I don't remember, is a boy can dream, can't he? Um, yeah, he which, he he's, he tells a poem and stuff, and then the last line says one uh, one can a boy can only dream, can dream, can't he? And that you're that right. Was that was the last that, line. Yeah, that's the last line, and and that is a um, it's not a pad ending. You know, when you, when you say, because yeah. um, it, there's a, a wonderful short story that was written um, by uh, a poet and and uh, prose writer, but mostly a poet, Delmore Schwartz. And it was a famous story called In Dreams Begin Responsibilities. Um, and, and that was the name of the story. And it's, we think about that, and it's true, because once you start to dream, if you want to attain that dream, you have to do certain things. There are responsibilities to having dreams, you know, uh, if you want them to, be, to come true. And so that's the kind of ending that I, that I wanted is like, oh, okay, what, what's he dreaming and what, you know, what's going to happen? And that's true of any of us, friend. We, we're really, mm-hmm. I think, um, a conglomerate, conglomeration of the dreams we have. You know, whether it's when you're a kid and you wanted to become a baseball player or a doctor or a dancer, mm-hmm. rocket, th- those those dreams are extremely important to who you are and what you become, uh, I think. And so, um, you know, we can tell a lot from people yeah, by their dreams. And some people don't dream at all. You know, they don't, I mean, when I say dream, I don't mean at night. I mean, some people don't have dreams. Those people usually have given up on life. Um, well, when I have a dream, it's usually because I'm yelling at somebody that did something that I don't like. You never know. Or that you go to sleep thinking about something and then it, you just can't stop it. So that brings me to the title, Canary in a Coal Mine. Does that mean someone or something that an early warning of danger is that what he's yes. trying to tell you? I got that yes. right. Not bad. Uh, well, here, what it what it um, alludes to is the miners yeah. used to, um, you know, uh, yeah. when they were digging the, the mines, they could unleash um, noxious gases uh, that could kill you. So what they what they did instead of them going down into the mine into the tunnel to see if there were these noxious gases, they would uh, lower a canary in a cage down mm-hmm. and when they brought the cage back up if the canary was alive then they knew it was safe to go down and if the canary was dead from the noxious gases they knew not to go down there mm-hmm. so that is what the title alludes to is is that it's it's a war it's a war- warning it's an early warning of danger and um that dream that that bad taste in his mouth that he wakes up with yeah. is his canary in the coal mine he knows something, you know, uh, and we all have that. Don't, don't we have these, these feelings sometimes of impending doom or something's mm-hmm. not right? Um, you know, it's some kind of anxiety and you're not sure where it comes from. And that's what that, um, that taste is for, for Fortunato. I also know when I get a text message from certain people, it's not because they want to say hello. Right, or there's the phone usually, rings for the night. Yeah, yeah there's, you know, it's yeah, there's usually... 
you you got to solve this problem because otherwise I'm in trouble. Or I have an essay. Could you help me write it? And I go like, yes, I don't exactly. know who you are. Yeah, my, I do that constantly. So where can we find out more about you and your work? And don't forget, May 5th is the panel um, panel yes. show with Vincent Zandri and you and Dick. And we're going to talk about where do you write and how do you write and whatever else I come up with. Who knows? So where can we find out more about you and your work? And I, I'm thinking of other panel shows that are going to be really weirder than that. Um, I I have a website that's really great and I can say that because I had Mm -hmm. nothing to do with building it or maintaining it charlesalsberg.com because you can go there and there are videos there and there are Mm -hmm. sort of interactive stuff and again I take no responsibility for it someone did it for Mm -hmm. me so you can find out about me there or you know Email me. I'll tell you everything about me. <laughs> I have no, um, you know, no, no secrets that way. Um, and I'm looking forward to the May 5th. Of course, Vincent, who I who I love, makes me really anxious because this guy finishes, as you know, Fran. He finishes a yeah. book like every week. I mean, there's no one that's more prolific than Vincent Zandri. So he always makes me feel like a, uh, you know, a slug. He's he's amazing, but I did he did listen to me with one thing. He's in Turkey, I know that. And when he I said to him, you have to put a picture of yourself when you were in a foreign country so we know you're alive. Because you just have to know. Yeah, I did that to my niece and my nephews and everybody. I said we have to just know that you're alive so that we can see that you're okay and having a wonderful vacation. Because when you're in a foreign country, you just never know, especially Turkey, you don't know what's going to happen. Exactly. So he's. He's been on here every day, but I want to thank you very much. This has been a lot, this has been fun. It really is, and um, I love your crime stories that you put on Facebook. I do read them. Thank you. And if people want to friend me on Facebook, they can see those crime crime of the day, true crime of the day. I write. Yeah, I know, and that that's what makes it really interesting. And if I ever get to sit down and write my next book, Population Zero, the world without people is. A lot of people didn't like it. A lot of people did like it. The purpose of it was is I created worlds that people would never want to live in. They're horrible. I invited a dead person to come back and experiencing it, asking the question, Can, would you like to live in my world, or are you going to start living better and kinder in this one? And right. I haven't Perhaps. decided. What, yeah, it's I different. One last thing. Tomorrow, if you're in New York City, mm-hmm. tomorrow at 6 o'clock, I'm doing a signing at a mysterious bookshop, which is 58 Warren Street. But it's going to be great because my friend Reed Farrell Coleman, a selling author, um, mm-hmm. is going to be doing me. So, uh, and I have no idea what he's going to ask me. So if anyone's in town, just come. Uh, it's open. Just you know, come and say hello. Well, he was on my radio show a while ago. And I didn't know what he was going to ask me either. <laughs> and I was right. asking the questions. Be ready. Let me tell you, he's good, but he's tough. But yep. everyone, yep. it's it's a beautiful day outside. Everybody, do something nice for someone and say hi and say good morning and just be polite. Everybody have a great day and bye. Thanks, Francie. See you in a couple of weeks. 
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.